Hey there, my name is Vosh. I live stream on YouTube and Twitch, and sometimes I even upload the good bits. This is Previously Live. Hello. Howdy. Can you hear me? I'm just muting your stream. Uh, I can hear you just fine. Awesome. So I am a sort of, or was maybe a sort of casual non-compete fan leading up to your debate. I, I thought it was kind of silly that he, you know, didn't have an ethical framework, I guess, or can answer those questions. But I think I see some of the rifts that form between you and other people that are more conventionally in like the bread tube video essay sphere and wanted to maybe explain a couple of them. Oh, and my my pronouns are he him for chat. Oh my god, you know the etiquette and everything. What a what a what a start. Um <laughs> yeah, all right, hit me up. So the first thing I wanted to ask was just your broad take on like hypotheticals in grounded political discussion as illuminating versus obscuring. Obviously, the people who'd reject hypotheticals as never having any use in developing an ethical system, that's that's pretty silly. But I think there's some instances in which they can prevent moving forward on the meat of more real-world issues. So one thing I mentioned in the email was like the Sam Harris v. Noam Chomsky exchange where Sam Harris would talk about, oh, what if the U.S. government was actually benevolent in like the Al-Shifa chemical plant bombings? And it's like, well, that's not what happened. And I feel just more in the context of like canvassing, rounding people up, like to go knock on doors in general, are you really going to like stop every volunteer and grill them on, you know, um, are you logically consistent? Why do you think the Holocaust is wrong? So I was just wondering your take on that generally. Well, hypotheticals are really good for testing moral consistency or for describing ethical systems, because when you're dealing with ethical conundrums, it's really good to isolate variables. When you're talking about real world problems, there are always a bunch of really murky kind of side details that can cloud one's judgment. Also, we don't have perfect info on things that happen in the real world. Even things we think we have perfect info on, we can't really. If you're talking about a hypothetical, though, you can control for all of that and just talk exclusively about a given idea. I think that's useful. In terms of like real practical political consideration, I do think that there's an issue with kind of meaningless hypothetical pontificating as a way of running away from the actual point at hand, you know? I see a lot of this done when it comes to um, like LGBTQ stuff, right? Where uh, this is kind of like the slippery slope thing, like conservatives will be like, okay, well, like, well, how would you like people that, you know, you say consent matters. Okay, well, what about like gay marriage? What if it's like pedophiles next or bestiality or whatever? Um, because a slippery slope really is a kind of, I mean, hypothetical, right? It's, it's a way of, um, you know, suggesting um, or, or testing the idea that if you go down a road, like these hypothetical situations might emerge down the line. The issue is with the non-compete thing, the only reason the hypotheticals came up was because non-compete basically called me a pedophile. <laughs> so I was just trying to like, yeah. yeah, the the thing that actually really bugged me there wasn't um, non-compete being dumb and weaselly. It was actually that non-compete seemed to actively resist having it explained to him. There, Cause like, it, it only took me like 30 seconds to explain like the context of the thing that Luna Oi dishonestly framed in in the in the Twitter, um, but he spent I think like eight minutes preventing me from talking about it, like interrupting me when I started a sentence or laughing me or like trying to like pull it away, which felt to me like he was essentially just trying to take a shit and leave, you know, like don't give me a second 
that like like basically just like leave the implication then run so that that bugged me but i understand the the, the hypotheticals can be used in a uh, a non um illuminating fashion okay that makes sense um i i think some people see sometimes the way you use hypotheticals or maybe the way you've used them in the past and the way you kind of get like clips sometimes as as just as being like kind of like strange sometimes is it okay if i ask about one of them and i know this is asked a lot and i promise not to be just trying to clutch you or anything get me um kill me yes so you know that vegan gains clip and like the the other the other clips where you've also talked about kind of the same point from what i understand your general point is um people are sort of blasé about consuming certain kinds of exploitation mm -hmm. and completely permissible with others and 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 that's what you want to stop right yes okay so i i guess like some people like me kind of view that analogy is a little bit weird because um just the way the way you would frame it sometimes they're not completely they're not both exactly consuming exploitation the i feel like the analogy would be more if you're buying a shirt and it's like a picture of like the child slaves like actively being beaten and like you're you're like you're you're using that to jerk off like there, there feels like there's more um sort of which, degrees of separation to the credit of the hypothetical would not be illegal uh right now in the united states I, I know what you're saying. It, it, this is an instance of terminal contrarianness. I blame destiny. Um, the, uh, the, the fundamental argument there that I made, the idea that we're very inconsistent with which kinds of unethical consumption like we're willing to condemn, because it's very difficult for us to condemn the whole supply line involves the exploitation of child workers thing, because that would take a lot of very, like, profitable industries down with it the the underlying point hasn't changed even remotely you know only the way in which i express it and that's because the way in which i expressed it used to be this kind of devil's advocate i dare you to challenge me on this how can you believe this but not that kind of thing but i think that was actually like debate bro brain type stuff because in that instance the way in which the argument was framed obfuscated the point rather than illuminating it, you know? It was evocative, but it was evocative in a way which drew attention away from the point. Because every time I explained the point to someone, even, like, I had a Proud Boy on once, um, who was implicated in the January 6th thing. Uh, oh, wow. and, and, well, even after I explained it to him, he was like, um, well, I guess I get that, but that was a dumb way of saying it. Which, if, if that's the response that I'm getting from Proud Boys, I mean, clearly the <laughs> delivery mechanism was flawed, you know? Yeah, I, I think that um, I definitely see the like edgy debate bro destiny thing because a, a couple of times you you would frame it as like uh, not like not always like this is these are both bad. This should be bad, too. But you might lead the argument before going into that with I can't think of like any moral or ethical reason why why this should be illegal while the other one is. And, and that feels just like a, a like a weird inversion. And I get how that's kind of to provoke people. But no, I, I think I think I get what you're saying. And, well, the, uh, the hope was that people would engage, right? Because the idea would mm. be they they would go like, yeah, of course the, this should be illegal, da da da. And then I'll go like, hmm. Well, then shouldn't that mean this should be illegal? But this is like this is a very naive, <laughs> as non-compete would put it, a very idealist. Uh, uh, actually, closer to idealism oh, than he seems to think <laughs> the definition is. Um, it, a very idealist way of looking at things. Uh, in reality, that uh, rhetorical strategy does not beget good faith engagement. Okay, so the second thing I wanted to talk about was um, 
more in line to like the Professor Flower stuff. This was another controversy where a lot of people hated on you. I, I'm not here about to defend like, uh, you know, all, all whiteys or colonizers or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I was just wondering, it, a lot of conversations um, Salone, surrounding decolonization, I, I feel like there's a lot of throughout history, bad faith sort of red baiting or gatekeeping. Like, like you could point to any disparate element, however minute, of a perfectly responsible, you know, activist group and find one crazy person saying something crazy and say, oh, either this group is like genocidal or you can see this throughout history, you know, uh, with Allende in Chile being like called like a crazy communist socialist is going to like, you know, end the world. Or with, you know, uh, Juan Jose Arevalo in Guatemala and Jacobo Rubens, which is even worse because they weren't even socialists. So um, re making sure to condone, you know, genocide and everything, that, that is really, really important. You don't want a group that has that. But I was wondering Condemn, if Condemn, I assume you mean. Sorry? Condemn, I assume you mean. Oh, I, I might have misspoken. Yeah. Uh, no, but... the, the, the meaning was taken, just making sure. Okay. So, yeah, I was wondering if this is just sort of like a rhetorical objection to members of the movement and wanting them to be maybe smarter and more sort of like consistent with how they advocate, or I, if it's something else, because some people might see this as, oh, he's talking about putting in practice like some institutional oversight designed to prevent genocide from occurring in like a developing nation. But I think like the political realism of whatever oversight committee that was like put there, that's not just some like, you know, meek UN that can only respond reactively would limit a significant degree more of their sovereignty than just, you know, whether or not they're committing a genocide or something. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, I, I guess I just don't know where this argument's coming from, because you can argue that, like, the Nazi Germans shouldn't have, like, done the Holocaust without somebody being like, oh, so you think that the post-World War I sanctions should have been stronger? You think they should have had, like, independent oversight from the from the you know league of nations to prevent you know you know what i mean like I, like it doesn't get brought up in any other context right like all, the only thing that the thing that weirded me out was she just wouldn't say like they shouldn't do the ethnic cleansing it was always kind of like a well it's up to them i wouldn't agree with it but it's up to them kind of thing which is you know sort of how everyone who wants to defend atrocities kind of defends atrocities at least it's one of the big strategies but like it has nothing to do with autonomy um, I think you can morally condemn the idea of a recently decolonized country doing a genocide without sort of implicitly suggesting some kind of like de-sovereignty, you know, so, some de-emphasization of the national sovereignty of the recently freed people. Um, yeah, I don't know. The, the weird thing about conversations like that, I feel like I'm, I'm always being more and more disappointed by the community on here. Because after the convo with Professor Flowers, which keep in mind, she made a video on me first, um, you know, I, I, and then I looked at it and I disagreed with parts of it. And then she made another and then we she agreed to come on. After that convo, I guess I just, I, every time I have a convo with someone like that, I expect to turn around to the rest of the online left and 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 for, that, for the rest of the online left to go like, okay, Vosh, we don't like you, but like, all right, we're washing our hands of this one. Like, okay, whatever. And sort of like go back, like leave, you know. But instead, what keeps happening is they fall in line to support that person, which is really, really weird to me, you know? I feel like it does a lot to promote the fear of reprisal, which is 
like a, a, a colonizer talking point. Um, but it's also one that people seem to be proud of. Like in one video, Professor Flowers right. essentially said, "Like, and you're lucky we don't, we won't want to kill you when we get power." Which is like weird because you can't simultaneously, yeah, yeah, you can't simultaneously say fear of reprisal is like a white supremacist talking point, but also say like you should fear reprisal. <laughs> That's very strange. You can't do both of those things. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's um, it's yeah, it's so really weird. No, I, I totally get what you mean. So so just to sort of like jump back to more what I, I meant, I think that um, in certain contexts, uh, that institutional oversight like uh, Nazi Germany, sometimes those conversations are had. Like, for example, at the time of the Treaty of Versailles, John Maynard Keynes wrote about the economic consequences of the peace and predicted much of like the economic turmoil that Germany would have by like the sort of like increased oversight, which led to many of the spurrings of like the Nazi movements, etc. I think also there's there's a there's a bit of a worry sometimes where um, if you know you have a big debate about like decolonization and it's all just like this crazy person talking about how they want to like you know uh, you know evict all the white people and that's sort of like where the conversation ends. I, I feel like sometimes um, people can feel like that's playing into the narratives of like decolonization. It, they, they kind of leave that maybe implicitly thinking, even though this, you wouldn't think that this, that all decolonization movements are like this. So what I yeah, think would be maybe a good thing. It's very is, unfortunate how they keep giving that impression. And then the rest of the online left keeps reinforcing that <laughs> impression by uncritically defending the worst advocates for decolonization. I agree completely. It's very frustrating. There was I like have a, one other... Oh, sorry. <laughs> I know. I just, I just want to say there was a subreddit post that I woke up to this morning. It's like there were so many people in my community who are like so doomer pilled and the rest of the online left because the online left is psychotic. And like, I understand that part of that has to do with like a special reaction that I seem to incur from them. But like, I don't know if I can be held responsible for like all the crazies the rest of the online left promotes and defends, right? I mean, I, like, I'm not making their opinions bad. Their opinions were bad. It's just, I, I seem yeah. to be the first person to question them. No, I totally get it. I, I think um, a really, really cool thing was when you brought on that indigenous activist to talk about like what real stuff is like. And I think that actually a really, really good pedagogical tool, I thought, was when you did the um, when you debated that random like Asadist guy who thought you could like open a window and like, you know, prevent like survive the gas attack that way okay. um after the debate in that same video you had like a 40 minute portion afterwards where you were like okay stop that guy was fucking insane this is what actually happened in that scenario and like kind of systematically walk through it and i think what problem some people might have with some of the debate space is that it, it can be like all blood you bring on some like dumbass argue with them and then you have to go to some like other video that has like you know a quarter of the views on your channel to get like the actual content and i think what can be integrated more sometimes a bit better if you want is kind of using that as a medium to like feed that okay this is what this actually looks like in the real world you know not all decolonization movements are like this insane person i just had on uh does, does that make any sense no it makes sense it's just frustrating for me because like ideologically professor flowers is a conservative um like a pretty far right one at that 
I guess it's just frustrating to me that a lot of this wouldn't be taken for granted. I don't know. The Duma thing was like a like a crazy conspiracy theory, so I felt like I had to give the full narrative there. But like, right? I I guess I feel like a lot of the stuff that I'm saying should be intuitive. Like maybe my expectations are too high or whatever. But with like with the decolonization stuff, like I don't know. When talking to Professor Flowers, I guess like I've talked to enough people and learned enough about decolonization. Um. That when I hear Professor Flowers talk, it just seems to me like very obvious, like right off crazy shit. But I guess there are a lot of people on the online left who like listen to like some fucking black chick go like, yeah, dude, like white people are all colonizers and like whatever, man, if they all have to like leave or die or whatever, like, yeah, that's freedom, whatever, lol. Like, and they hear that and they're like, damn, anti-colonial theory sure is based. Like, <laughs> I, you know, I, it's like, so I guess like, I, I, I mean, depending on where the standards are, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean. Maybe there is more work to be done there. I I, I I don't know if the right people would even listen to me. Because, like, the the rest of the online life, sure, shit wouldn't. I would trust one of my fans on decolonial theory up against, like, any other communities online, like, easily. With a possible exception of maybe, like, Contras, because she's sane. Um, I, right. I, yeah, I, I feel like everyone else could have some really weird preconceptions on that, you know? I, I think just some of the concern is that um, in many of these debates, the conversation can never get like more than, you know, thimble deep. And this is, this is again, like, this is not your fault. Like you get some like insane people chirping at you and you bring them on and talk about it. But it's like, um, you know, th th there's a lot of really cool stuff, good ideas uh, being talked about in terms of like decolonization. Um, you know, we, we, one example is uh, Andre Sarauz actually had a proposal for IMF reform where they issue like trillions of SDRs and give them to developing countries to help them weather coronavirus stuff. And I feel like stuff like that just never even enters like not just you, like all of left tube in general and, and, and stuck, whether it's video essays or debate bros, just having these really sort of like, again, thimble deep conversations. And I'd like to see just maybe like a tide more from everybody pointing people here, like, here's where you can go, you know, read more about this stuff. Um, because I think on the whole, your intuitions are good. Um, yeah. I do, I do try to get more out of those convos, you know, I know nobody believes me, <clears throat> but like when I bring people like that on my, my honest to God goal is never to destroy them. If you like, usually people get their impressions of those videos based on the tweets that take place afterwards, but if you go and watch those videos from the beginning, I'm usually, like, really, like, calm and methodical at the beginning. Like, I'm trying to build up to something, you know? I understand that I have an antagonistic reputation, and that might lead to people being defensive around me, so usually I try to work through that by being, like, you know, very point by point. But mo usually when I bring people on, like, they've already called me, like, a racist pedophile, like, transphobe, so <laughs> I feel like I actually keep the gloves on pretty well. You, you know what I mean? Like, with, with non-compete, yeah. for example, I feel like, like, in terms of etiquette, like, I could have called, like, non-compete basically anything the moment he came on and would have been justified <laughs> in doing so, but... You know, I have to, you know, I have to, you know, walk the, down the lane, but we always get trapped on something. Non-compete, like, for instance, if, if you believe that, you know, having an ethical system is idealism, you should never talk about anything ever again. You should go, <laughs> you should be, you should be uh, a mute and you should go live on a monastery and you should spend the rest of your life, like, trimming bushes and, like, cleaning the insides of, like, uh, like wine casks or something. It, 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 with, with with Professor Flowers, I didn't think the convo would get stuck up on she thinks that it's, like, up to colonize people to do an ethnic cleansing. I, like, I never expect these things to go that way, you know? Um, <clears throat> I try to be constructive with it, but, but past a point, like, there are just some irreconcilable differences. I, I, I mean, you're right. I guess I can, like, try to compensate for that with 
with um with you know like well they're not all like that but it feels kind of hollow when at least in terms of the mean. online left they are because that's what gets signal boosted the good figures on these issues don't get signal boosted you know like th th those people yeah because most of the people I, I on the think... online left are guilty whites who are going to automatically think that the most reactionary anti-white shit is the most based leftist theory because they think that leftism is the opposite of conservatism and conservatism is when you're pro-white or anti-black so leftism is when you're anti-white and pro-black like i think i legitimately think that's where their thought process is at and then and then they just signal boost like any dumb shit, you know. It's like so like uh, I'm I'm trying, you know. <laughs> yeah, I I get what you mean. Uh, I I think actually some of my um maybe I'm in a minority here. Uh, but like some of my favorite stuff of your content is sort of where you like talk about you know stuff you know from like your sociology degree and break that down. And I think you can be like, you know, you you at your best can have a really good way of like combining like this entertainingness with really like cutting deep into some issues and uh i, I guess maybe this is bemoaning the space in general that it, as you said can never really get past those you know okay um <laughs> do you do you think all white people are colonizers or whatever uh, also in 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 my defense i uh <laughs> wait, wait, non-compete fan quote unquote i uh I don't know. I haven't really followed up with BreadTube that much in the past few years since I went to university, but I feel like a lot of his older content was like, this is what Kropotkin said in the in the bread book. I, I don't know. I, I'm not... <laughs> no, a lot... I'm no, not I, some tanky or anything. <laughs> I've watched non-competes videos before. Not all of them are bad. Or, you know, at least... I mean, I've had disagreements with some of them, but I never watched non-competes videos like ye back and thought like, oh, what a lunatic, you know? I, I think I'm getting increasingly distrustful of video essayists with time because mm -hmm. video essays are minute by minute the most efficient, compelling, effective way of delivering any information. Having the benefit of editing and script writing is always going to make a point delivered better than anything you could do through a debate, at least in terms of like a single person's delivery. But, um, you know, in, in just in terms of content delivered as opposed to like style maybe. But... um. The issue is it seems like so many people who just have no right to talk about politics are able to hide that fact by by dressing things up with editing and by like citing quotes from books that they haven't read. <clears throat> and it's right. really frustrating. I feel like not everyone should be able to be like a charismatic debate bro. You know, I'm not saying everyone should be able to like do what I do because, you know, public speaking or being able to think up of like funny insults on the fly, you know, this doesn't translate one-to-one -to, -one to being politically aware in fact there's almost no relationship between these things <laughs> um but like just in a conversation without the benefit of editing like a lot you, you can cover up a lot with good editing you know like you can there are some crazy people out there who can hide that shit bad empanada is another good example his edited videos on the main channel tend to be pretty good but like dudes on like his 18th twitter account because he keeps getting banned, like, telling people to kill themselves of harassment. Like, he's actually psychotic. Yeah, that's a weird case. It's, yeah, right? But, like, you can cover up a lot with video essays, you know? So it's like, I don't know, um, man. The, uh, the Jangles guy, he had a video called In Defensive Debate, where he kind of, like, touched on that. And I actually agree with that. Yeah, you can, you can deceive a lot with, you know, rhetoric, and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be in a debate, certainly. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, the only thing I'm saying. I'm not saying debate's better, only that people say that, like, sophistry lets you get away with shit when you're debating, but I think that there's, like, another equivalent way of masking 
poor information or bad ethics in, in video essays, you know? That's it. It's just I, I feel like it both can be done. Yeah, I com yeah, I completely get that. So the, the last thing I wanted to ask you about briefly was sort of what is your like your economic system that like the changes you want to make um the reason i say this is i see a lot of people on the left sometimes sort of like vaguely talk about you know decommodification and sometimes i feel like that means abolishing profit motive which i think is like entirely defensible sometimes it means a much more vague abolish like economics and like 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 money is fake let's just do away with everything and sort of like a disconcern with some of the necessary logistical processes that would be involved if there ever was a revolution or something. I, I feel like some of the leftist experience is like the myth versus reality is, oh, what after the re re revolution, everything is going to be like so great. We're going to have time to like sing and dance and play games. And the reality is I was going to be like an, you know, like some Argentine doctor and now I'm the central banker of the country. Oh shit. Oh fuck. So like, I feel like there's a little bit of neglect in some left spaces of like, economics and law and finance more generally and and i was wondering sort of like what what your approach to that stuff is there's no way for me to answer this without rambling for a good minute are you okay with that completely fine go for it okay <clears throat> so here's the issue okay there's a huge difference between understanding the necessity or inevitability of revolutionary violence when compared to framing it in the terms that it was framed in back during the older socialist revolutions of the day. The issue is, is that Russia's economy was like dog shit and potatoes back when the Russian Revolution happened. They were, it was literally feudal. They had like farmers and, and like some factories. Like that was it, you know. The modern economy is this massive, interconnected, global thing. The modern economy is like some guy trips over a server cord in Singapore and, like, servers get taken out in Canada, which prevent the delivery of, like, steel shipments <laughs> to U.S., which means that a car doesn't get built. Like, the, the connections are so... The, the thing is, there is literally no person who understands all of the, the nuances of the modern economy, and there's no system we could build that would. It is infinitely complex, and data on the nature of the modern economy is still stored in the brains and on the hard drives of literally billions of people and computers. There's no way to understand all of it, which means that any kind of nation-seizing, you know, revolutionary activity done in any modern country is going to have an unfathomably negative effect in the world economy. Like, like beyond, I think, what a lot of people are willing to acknowledge. You can get, like, good outcomes, I think, in a lot of developing countries because their economies tend to be relatively simple. If your whole economy is, like, exporting oil or, like, you know, having Western companies employ you for 20 cents a day to uh, mine... Um, uh, you know, silicon or something like that. Uh, your economy is 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 a little more stable. Um, you could have a revolution, maintain the fundamental mechanisms that allow for uh, your economy to thrive and flourish. You can get things back up and running. That is not the case here in America. It's not the case in any developed country, not in the modern world. So the issue that we have right now is that any kind of mass uh, decommodification or any revolutionary violence which necessarily interrupts economic flow would not only massively lower the standard of living for people in that country, it would also fuck over the world economy, which would probably cause a lot more people in the third world to starve and die than it would in the first world. 
All this put together, to me, suggests that decommodification, you know, the complete removal from the modern commodified neo-liberal um, market, is not something that can be done um, sporadically, and it's not something that can be done through violence. It's not something that can be done without a massive global shift away from those types of commodity relations. Now, I do think what can be addressed without fucking everything up would be the abolition of the bourgeois, you know, um, proletarian state. Mm -hmm. You have a country which is necessarily controlled by the working class, um, you can have this without fundamentally interrupting any of these economic processes. And for that reason, I think it's necessary that we secure a proletarian state before we even begin to look at mass decommodification. You can decommodify stuff like, say, housing or railway networks, transportation, medical care. But when the government decommodifies stuff, that usually just means they pick up the bill. The government is just the one paying for all this crap. It's still fundamentally a commodified system in terms of its relationship to the global commodity, the external chains of production and consumption are left unaffected. It's just that rather than individual companies buying the stuff, laying it down and people paying for it use by use, the government uses tax money to buy it and then people use it for free or for a discounted price, heavily subsidized. So with all of that being said, the first thing I think we need to take care of is the abolition of the, um, the class divide. And after that is taken care of, then you can begin to look at these economic nuances. And it may well be the case, even after all of that is said and done, that the economy is just so unimaginably complex that decommodification turns into this slow grinding process where you get like subsidies or nationalization of the essential industries, you know, housing, medical care, whatever. But maybe luxury goods take a long time to curl about. I mean, there's never been a nation on earth in any point in history that hasn't had some kind of market, black market or otherwise. So... I guess I'm just not that concerned about total decommodification. I'm more concerned about the, the the power relations between the bourgeois and the proletariat first and foremost, because I think that informs all the subsequent relations. And then what you can do following that power shift to ensure livelihood standards which are comparable to or in the vein of what the communists envisioned while working on the more fine economic details because who the fuck knows what economic shit's going to be possible in 50 years it's not like somebody in 1973 could have like predicted the modern world and gone like ah yes actually the modern economy 90 percent of all currency will be stored in computers you know like that like this is like, no they couldn't have predicted this shit so i don't think we can either i think but so the nature of the economy maybe heavily dependent on material circumstances, but power relations, the existence of the bourgeois, the proletariat, you know, this is something which is the, the concept of class divide has been around, at least in a Marxian sense, for a very long time in human history. So we can address that knowing that it's going to stay fairly consistently existent in the near future. Um, and in terms of like what kind of lives we're going to lead and live after that, I think we really just need to bleed out what excess value and efficiency we can get from the systems we have now. You know, it shouldn't be lost on any of us that right now, any person working in any productive industry is probably a thousand times as efficient as any person would have been 150 years ago. Any worker at a textile plant singly controls the production of an unfathomable amount of product relative to a single person working at a textile plant in the, you know, Victorian era. The, like, the relative level of productivity is staggering. So why is it that people still work multiple jobs to survive. A lot of it is because we need to produce more in order to sustain a modern way of living, and I understand that to an extent. A lot of it is because of stuff like, uh, you know, planned obsolescence and the fact that we produce things simply because they need to be consumed. We don't produce things to last. We encourage 
commodity, you know, uh, conspicuous consumption where people will just buy shit because they have empty lives with no friends. So they just like think they could fill the hole with buying commodities. I feel like if we worked on those cultural influences and bled them away, there might be a lot of excess efficiency that we could use to reduce, say, for example, the work day or the work week. If you start bleeding it away slowly, you know, four hour work weeks, three or sorry, uh, four day work weeks, three day work weeks, you know, eight hour days, six hour days, four hours days. And, and then you start to delegate a lot of these fundamental community uh, like services down to a more local level have them more directly related to the community um not just like obvious stuff like maybe like cleanups or community watches or whatever um but you know maybe um maybe you would expect like vocational training uh or or or, or more fundamental social stuff you know uh to be relegated to more decentralized community roles and i think you can sort of lean towards all of that without ever actually getting to communism you know but i feel like all of this yeah is informed by the communist, you know, world ethic. And and that's what I care about, I guess. And I and, and I, I talk about this the way that I do because I'm not a utopian. Um, I don't know how the world's going to be, but I think that's a reasonable track. You know, it's it's a it's a reasonable like road and and it's 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 a a game plan. You can move in that direction, see how things change, do what one will. Nice. Yeah, that's uh very, uh, you know, very eloquently articulated. I think I, I agree with a lot of that. Um, I, I think like one of my problems with like, like economics in general is that there's so many like really dog shit, simple narratives that get thrown around, particularly in wake of like coronavirus and inflation discourse, you know, like people will say, oh, um, you know, the, the checks that we gave out to people that caused inflation well, that didn't really happen you only you really only started to see any like movement in the cpi when there was a shipping container shortage um when we were ordering more stuff from china than they were from us uh, like in economics you, you talk about like a trade surplus or deficit but it, it, it some of these it also needs to like physically balance like we may buy you know a shipping container full of iPhones and send back industrial equipment. The one is more expensive than the other, but for the shipping container to go back, it needs to be filled with some stuff, whether it's the same monetary value or not. So I, I think that like looking at a lot more physical constraints than that is is like pretty good practice. Like, man, like in the summer, um, like sixty percent of the inflation was driven by like just the automotive industry, and, and it's like there's a lot of these like just in time paradigms where. You have like drivers, truckers will, the, the turnover is like 20,000, like every few months of like actual trucking companies in the United States. And they're very uncoordinated. We'll just like message on WhatsApp and Facebook, like message groups is terribly inefficient. Oh yeah. Um, there are, anyway. there are always improvements to be made. I just want those improvements to be informed. A lot of the economy is kind of like, um, oil rigs. You know, it's very expensive to close an oil rig, you know, like the, the pressure with which the oil is jetted up for um, for collection. Uh, it, it means that like you need it, it costs an unimaginable amount, like it, it's incredibly difficult to close an oil rig. And a lot of the economy is like that. You can't just stop and start things like it's it's very butterfly effect. Any tiny change anywhere yeah. Le yeah leads to like a huge like cavalcade rippling effect so I, I feel like a lot of people on the left are very blasé about that which which frustrates me a bit you know like i get the yeah. whole like joking that the economy and money aren't real is fine like because they're they're not but seriously believing that they're not real can can be quite <laughs> dumb you know let's not keep the the 
leftists were some of the most informed, you know, economic theorists of the 19th century. Marx, yeah. Yeah. Let's not um, undo that reputation, uh, <laughs> you know, now with a poor understanding of these systems. Uh, yeah. The, your favorite creator thought slime actually has a video where he, he just is basically like all money is fake and dumb. Uh, and like, that's it. Uh, I th like, actually, th there are many examples of even anarchist theorists talking about money seriously, like the late David Graeber, who passed away earlier this year, who's like, died in the wool, biggest anarchist out there. He talked about like the emergence of like debt and credit relationships, and how that, you know, money doesn't really just come from barter, it becomes when your obligation to someone becomes sort of like extractable from that, you know, I I owe you one because you saved my life. Well, now I owe you one and it's worth exactly this amount and it can be like exchanged and so on. Um, like there's examples in like, say, the Great Depression of communities, say like Detroit, um, actually starting to issue their own currencies to help like mediate like resource mm -hmm. flows, et cetera, because there, there was no money around at the time. And I feel like more thought along that way is from like, like leftist theorists talking about like just because we're talking money or finance or law, I feel like many leftists just look at that kind of scowl and go, ew, Wall Street. And, and I want to see that change a bit. I think there's a lot of good work being done and like by even by progressives in some of these domains. You have to understand systems that you dislike. And I agree with the money thing, by the way. The concept of money as we understand it now is not going to go away in its entirety, no matter what economic system we adopt. Because fundamentally, money allows for things like you can call it like, uh, you know, labor vouchers or whatever if you want. But yeah, um, yeah. It, yeah it, it allows for a sort of mutual economic codependence, which is just a necessity in the modern world. You know, we're not banging rocks together. People make smartphones now. Like th there's no way these systems can perpetuate without some kind of underlying system for ensuring the appropriate distribution of and collection of resources necessary to facilitate that production. And you can call this labor credits, you can call this money, you can cause this like, you know, big boy factory dollars, what, like however you want to parse that. The, the, there are underlying mechanisms money facilitate that are irreplaceable in a modern world. There are things we can do away with, you know, the modern debtors economy, for example, capital, oh, yeah. the idea of like investment for like, like there are things that money can do we don't, we need, don't payday need loans after the revolution yes yes we do not need payday loans after the revolution we don't need to keep <laughs> everything okay there are systems however you know like it's one of the reasons why some people like mistake communism for for a kind of primitivism you know what i mean it doesn't have to be you can have yeah, yeah you can have communism without relying on the abolition of of, of modernity so yeah, i don't know well, some I, elements I of modernity, like, maybe. But. Another thing is just like understanding how um, how like a bank works. And I, I think that's really, really important for like leftists to understand. Many people even today have like this idea of banks like sit, wait for deposits to come in and then like lend those out at like a fraction. That's not at all how it works today. Banks will extend loans based on their analysis of market activity. And then that will be vertically accommodated by the central bank. And so when you kind of understand that nugget where it's, oh, okay, wait, all, all money is not just sort hey, of like zero sum cash transfers or like leveraging that to multiply it. We can envision like chartering banks that, you know, lend more to co-ops, for example. Um, it's very hard for co-ops to seek financing because they can't really issue like 
control shares to people without like sacrificing their identity. But I think like a, a lot more conversation needs to come with like, okay, financial inclusion doesn't need to be filled by just payday loans or like we can provide financing for co-ops in ways that doesn't rely on them like sacrificing their integrity. And this goes into like even like antitrust stuff too. Like there's 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 no reason why um a rideshare co-op should be like busted under the Sherman Act, but that's just like the precedent we have under like Copperweld and American Needle. And looking at that and thinking, okay, in the economy, it's about allocating coordination rights and giving the, the these people like the rights and the means to do that. We can think about kind of like what structures we want to accommodate instead and allow to coordinate that aren't just, you know, fucking Uber gig economy, like, you know, insane death drive corporations. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, at the very least, the more we're willing to acknowledge these, you know, the nuances as opposed to a sort of dogmatic uh, approach. I, dogmatism is useful for propaganda, and it's good for getting people on your side, but I feel like it's very unhelpful when it comes to actual analysis. Um, yeah, and unfortunately, we tend to conflate those. There's nothing wrong with simple rallying cries to get people angry, but that's not the same as analysis. Marx understood the difference. That's the reason why he wrote Capital, and he wrote, you know, the Communist Manifesto, and they're written very differently. He understood the the distinction, you know, between those two types of, yeah. uh, of appeal. Um, I, um, this conversation is unexpectedly interesting, but after being good faith with you, we have to be bad faith with someone else now. I <laughs> oh, think. no, I, I completely understand. Like, thank you for honestly being so nice. I, when I said I was like a non-compete fan, I wasn't sure if you were going to immediately scream at me and call me like a wife guy or something. I, I'm glad that wasn't the case. Uh, you know, um, not all wife guys are bad, okay? Only some wife guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the people's wife guy. Yeah. Um, I, actually, I, I like to give kind of one shout out. I have no social media presence at all, but if you found that conversation about like econ and finance stuff interesting, um, there's a really cool person who writes about some of this from like a leftist perspective and like understanding current crises called uh, Nathan Tankus. And he like occasionally contributes to Bloomberg as well, but like a really progressive leftist guy. And he like, has a blog called Notes on the Crisis. Really, really good stuff. Um, anyways, thanks again for having me on. Uh, and I hope you have a good rest of your stream. The pleasure is mine. Thank you very much. And have a good day. You too.